Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that Jesus is on the throne, that he is the second Adam, that he is uh, the greater David, that he is uh, the greater Solomon, uh, that he is the servant of the Lord. Um, uh, who is worthy to ascend to your holy hill? Who can offer the right sacrifices that you desire? Um, it is Lord Jesus Christ who, uh, who is worthy and who has offered himself as the sacrifice uh, in his body that you have prepared. I pray that we would understand Jesus more today, that we would understand the story that he steps into and the story that we are called to step into as well by faith. Uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are talking about dominion and faith, and we've talked more about faith recently, but faith is really, uh, to give you kind of the main point of today, faith is the, the way in which we experience and fulfill dominion, all right? Faith is the way we live and experience dominion, and if that sounds different, if you've kind of seen what God called us to do in the garden with creation as somehow different from what He's called us to do in the church and as Christians, then I would say you've not understood the story of the Bible. And that's what we've tried to ameliorate through this class, is is understanding what are we supposed to be doing in church? What are we supposed to be doing with the gospel? What's, What's Jesus all about in the Great Commission? And if you don't see that the call and the Great Commission and the vocation of Jesus and our life in Him is directly connected to the vision that was in the garden. And somewhere along the line, you left the start of the story and you started. You went to a different story. And so a lot of what this class is is just, again, we started with narrative. We started with story. And we started with God, the Bible comes to us as a story, and it leads to a telos, and the telos is Jesus and our life in Him. But in the middle, there's this drama, and if we don't understand the drama and how it connects to the beginning and how it leads us to the end, when we get to the end, uh, we may not have the end in mind that the whole Bible was, was pointing to. Yes, Doug. Ameliorate. Oh, very good. I, I use big, I'm sorry. Ameliorate. Fix. We want to fix. We want a remedy. We want to uh, uh, provide a, uh, yeah, a remedy, a, a, a fix. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about the story of the Bible. The Bible uh, starts with a garden. It has this vision for man this, and, and this vocation for man to be a, a priest king. The, the whole image of God uh, is, is the, uh, that priest king vocation applied. Uh, to all of life, and it's to, to be in God's presence, out of God's presence, and, and communion with Him and communion with one another. We're to go into the whole world and fill the earth with the glory of the Lord as we take dominion and subdue the entire earth and bring it under, Christ, under God's uh, rule and reign through humanity. But we abandoned that vocation. We fell in Adam, and so every part of our image of Godness has been turned on its head, and humanity responded to that predicament with this project of fake dominion. We spent some weeks talking about fake dominion, trying to fulfill the image of God, but apart from communion with God, uh, for the glorification of ourselves instead of the glorification of God through us. And that fake dominion is epitomized in Babylon, trying to build a city that ascends to God and make a name for himself. And one, one key narrative theme that I didn't talk about um, 
is just just the word Shem. Um, Shem means name, or it's a play on the words of, it sounds like name uh, in Hebrew. And uh, God, uh, he makes a covenant with Noah, and through Noah, he blesses Shem and says, um, you know, my blessing is going to be upon you, and Ham is going to be cursed. And we see uh, the lot, uh, Abraham comes from the line of Shem, but in between Abraham and Shem, we have the Tower of Babel project. And again, we've talked about what is Babel trying to do? What are the people trying to do? They're trying to make a, a Shem for themselves, a name for themselves. So they kind of turn uh, Noah's promise of God's blessing upon Shem on its head, and it's like, we're going to get the blessing for ourselves. We're going we're to make a name for ourselves. And then God comes to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'll make your Shem very great. I'll make your name very great. So that's just, again, another, another uh, literary clue where the author of Genesis is telling us, here's, here's the main point, right? It's not Babylon. It's, it's what I'm doing in Abraham. And that's where we left off last week. Well, God's promises to Abraham are the very same substance of what God called mankind to do in the garden. God's going to uh, bring humanity back to the vocation that he was supposed to fulfill as, as, as priest kings, uh, taking dominion over all the earth, uh, but he's going to do it uh, not through the project of, of Babylon. He's going to do it through Abraham and his seed. And, um, and so God's solution to to what brought us the flood, what brought us Babel, uh, is what brought us fake dominion, is what God's doing in Abraham. And last week we talked about Abraham's belief in that. He, he believed that the solution that God proposed through his offspring, because that was uh, one of the things that God promised, through your seed I'm going to bring about this restoration, which is the same seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15, the one who would come from the woman, who would crush the serpent, uh, that seed's going to come through you. And so the object of Abraham's faith was God's going to restore the world through a seed that comes from me. And he believed that. And we see in his life that, uh, and this is something that many of later uh, prophets and the apostles will pick up on, Abraham believed that message and God counted to him as righteousness. Right? It wasn't through Abraham working something up in himself. At this time, he's barren, or his wife's barren. He has no land. God's given us these promises. But Abraham, he doesn't believe these things are going to happen in his own strength because he's not, he's not done anything. He's, he's not able to do anything. He's, he can't have kids. Instead, he lays hold of these things by faith. So last week, we talked about the object of faith. This week, though, we enter in probably the, one of the most important uh, classes, I think, to really... Um, wrap everything up that we've talked about this quarter, and that's the experience of faith, the experience of faith. And the, the key uh, text we're going to be discussing is Genesis 22, and we're also going to then fast forward through, you know, uh, 600 years of biblical history up to David and talk about First Chronicles 21 and uh, David's plan to build the temple. And this is, because we've got to get to Jesus somehow, so, and I only got... We're getting there. 
Uh, but we're going to do it for these two stories. Okay? We're going to do it to these, to these two stories. And I've given you a handout uh, that has these two stories side by side. And I've highlighted, or I, I should say bolded, uh, bolded and underlined some text in these stories. Uh, there's, a story, there's two columns of, of narrative texts, uh, Genesis uh, 22 and 1 Chronicles 21. And the point of, of highlighting these, these, these terms, sorry, bolding and underlining um, these terms, is for you, is kind of my argument to you of the writer of 1 Chronicles 21 has Genesis 22 in mind when he's writing this. And there's some literary clues that help us to see that, that bring these two things together. And uh, what unites these two things together is the place, uh, a sacrifice, um, the idea of a substitute, uh, the idea of, of a covenant head acting in faith, and God then promising blessing, and then a new life emerging and a new, new movement in, in uh, biblical history towards redemption. So... That's the big wind-up. Uh, really, uh, I, as I'm preparing this class, I, I, uh, it's really hard to describe all these connections here. And uh, in one sense, that's the point, because we started this class talking about narrative. And so if I were to try to, we'll try to systematize it. We'll try to draw us out some abstractions that we can talk about and where we can summarize the story. But... That's no substitute for just experiencing the story, right? Just living in the story. So we're just going to walk through these stories, and, and my hope is that you'd see these connections, and you would enter into the experience of the characters in the story, and, and that that would, uh, you, you would fill your minds with these biblical categories and these, these biblical themes. Because, you know, we've been talking about seed, we've been talking about promise, we're talking about uh, this vision, and it's come to us in the form of children being born, it's come to us in terms of a flood, it's come to us in these sacrifices, and we got this land, and we got Israel, and we got all this stuff. And, you know, as Christians, as 21st century Christians who've had 2,000 years of Christian teaching, it's hard to put our minds back pre-Christ. And what the people experienced pre-Christ was mystery. They experienced this mystery of God's working, but we don't know how it's all going to come together. Right? And you have, when you're reading the Old Testament, you, you have to sit with this drama and, and tension that we know is resolved in the message of the apostles, but the excitement of the apostles, the, the zeal and the thrill, and what, what led these guys to want to you know, offer their bodies as literal sacrifices being crucified like Christ, being flogged, being stoned, being persecuted. What's, what's driving these guys? What's driving these guys fundamentally is that the mystery hidden in the Old Testament of how this is all going to come together comes together in Jesus Christ. Right? So, so to um, again, they got to tell us. We want to experience the drama leading up to that so that when, when we see Christ... Right? We don't just see an idea, and, and we don't just see uh, a, an objective historical figure, but we see in Christ the plan for the fullness of time, the, 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 the person who is the object of our deepest love and affection, 
uh, not just in a mushy-gushy uh, teenage romance sense, or, 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 nor in just an idyllic, uh, stoic hero sense either, but the, the meaning of the entire universe. So I say all that to say I can't, you can't experience that unless you just, you just jump into the story. So um, if there's kind of ambiguities kind of baked into our discussion today, just, just keep reading the stories. Just, just keep, keep reading the stories and, um, and really, really wrestle with the stories. Okay, so with all that said, all that said, um, let's, let's jump in to the experience of faith and let's read Genesis 22. So we'll start there, Genesis 22, and let's read it together. Genesis 22. After these things, so these things, um, what's immediately happened previously is Abraham has made a covenant with Abimelech because he again uh, lied about uh, the fact that Sarai was his wife and got him into trouble, but God rescues him and uh, blesses him in spite of his, his, his sin and unbelief, and God, God, uh, God rescues him. So after those things, and everything that's happened previously, uh, conquering some, some uh, ancient Near Eastern kings, uh, exp- receiving the covenant of uh, circumcision, circumcising his family, uh, after he's uh, tried to bring about God's promises through his own strength by having Ishmael through Hagar, the slave, after all these things. Genesis 22.1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So he went So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. 
And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. All right. So, who is Isaac? In this story. And generally, who is this person? The promised son. Very good. And what else? Abraham's only son, whom he loves. Okay, who else is Isaac? He was going to be an offering. Okay, <laughs> whoa. Prom- he's, good. he's promised. Yeah, he's, he's the promised son, uh, and he's, he's, God's given him as a gift, and now God wants to Abraham to offer him up as a sacrifice. Dave, were you going to say something? Okay. Um, and so... He's not just someone's son. He, he's also the fulfillment of God's promise. Um, and, and yet God tells Abraham uh, to sacrifice him. And so, again, from a, from a human perspective, I guess just, and I've, in anticipation for this, has anyone here read uh, Fear and Trembling by Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, or heard of that book? It's uh, Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish uh, <clears throat> author. He wrote several books. Uh, he's linked with Christian existentialism, although I think that's people kind of use that as a pejorative. And his whole point in a lot of his writing was like, you think you have experienced Christianity, or you, you think you understand what it means to, you know, do good and be good, and, and you have no idea what you're talking about. There, there's an experience to these things that you need to experience. And he spends a whole book talking about this chapter in the Bible. And one of, one of the questions he asks is, what's the difference between what Abraham's called to do and murder? And you have to just kind of let that hit you for a while to just, again, enter into the experience of Abraham we don't know, just pretend in your mind you don't know Christ is coming. You don't know the son of David's coming. You've lived your whole life. You're over 99 years old. You've never had a son. God gives you a son, and then he tells you to kill your son. Like, what is it? So at that point, what is Abraham called to believe? That his son was born for this purpose? Okay. Resurrection. Now, how, why do you say that? That's right. You read the cliff notes. You read the cliff notes. That's the apostle's job, is to explain all these things to us. But how does Abraham make that connection? Yeah, did. Mm-hmm. Why do you say that? Flush it out. There's no other, there's no other solution to all the promises that God's 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, great, uh, Jim. Yeah, right. Yeah, Abraham gives us a clue. Like he knows, he knows Isaac's not going to die, or or at least stay dead. Abraham doesn't doesn't know how it's going to happen, but he he knows Isaac's going to come back with him. If you look at um, uh, verse five, yeah, he tells his his young men, "Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship." and come again to you. That verb, come again to you, is plural. We will come again to you. Yeah. Okay. That's okay, yeah, yeah. Hmm. What, 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 what do you understand reincarnation to mean? Yeah, so, so reincarnation. So the question is asked, is this kind of what's the difference between resurrection and reincarnation? Is that kind of your question? So I, reincarnation, kind of in an Eastern sense, is more this, the, the essential spirit of something is remanifested in a different form. Um, resurrection is the same essence, the same spirit, re-inhabits the same body again. That's, it's... Uh, um, it's different. It's, it's so if Isaac's not going to be reincarnated here, he's, he's going to be uh, resurrected here. The same Isaac, the same body, but it's now brought back, back, back to life. Um, so, yes, Dave.
Yeah, right. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Andrew. Oh. Well, and also it's, it's the third day. It, he did, he was, it was three days. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Yeah, Kierkegaard makes this really, um, he really hones in on that, that Kierkegaard says, if I were Abraham, I would have gone as fast as possible, just gotten it over with. Yeah, Ab- there's a deliberateness to Abraham's stride here. He's not, he, he's, it's not, uh, he's not filled with this kind of uh, dreadful resignation. It's faith, right? It's not just, God's got this huge bounty on my son, and I've got to pay it, or I'm going to just, he's this, that's not Abraham's attitude here. It's not, it's not just this passive resignation and just pure self-denial. It's, it's something much more, it's much, much deeper than that. Sorry, Andrew, you had your hand up for a little bit. Yeah, there's, there's a whole lot going on here. And I'm glad you brought up Job, because I think that, that gets at kind of what 
I'm hoping to drive at, that e even if there's, um, even if Kierkegaard's not fully steeped in the, um, you know, the Near Eastern history of, of, of what an offering uh, entails, and, uh, you know, obviously Kierkegaard doesn't think it's murder either, but he's trying to call us to enter into the experience of faith in the sense of even if a father knew that he was supposed to offer us his son to God as an offering and that it was his holy obligation, there would still be this filial, paternal uh, love and connection and at, at an emotional level. I don't want to make it all emotional. That's not what I'm saying. But it's, it's certainly no less, less um, the emotions are no less involved. And that's where I think the connection with Job is helpful because Job, in one sense, is called to go through the same essential experience as Abraham in, in his test. And we, we get the window into... Now, now, I just made that statement. Do you guys... Why do you think I'm making that statement? Is anyone... <laughs> what right do I have to connect Abraham to Job? What, what do you think I'm driving at? I, may, I maybe haven't given you enough cues yet. Maybe I've... Right, so there's a test, but is there a commonality between their experience in that, in that test? Lost, yeah, he had to give, he gave, he gave everything up. God, God, in one sense, took everything that was his and, and brought it to him. And, and Job's response was, what's going on? I don't, get what's on? I don't understand what's happening to me. Right? And, and we see Abraham's faith, too, but like, don't miss the fact that what's God? I, I don't, you know, I have faith. God's going to work out his plan, but I don't know quite exactly how it's going to work out. And, and what Job is so powerful for us is because Job forces us to just sit in these paradoxes and these contradictions of God's promise and God's blessing, but it's coming in the most, in the ways that we would not have ever picked for ourselves. We wouldn't have written the story of Abraham if we were writing it. We wouldn't have written the story of Job if we were writing it, right? But there's something about entering into this experience that I think the biblical authors are, are driving us at. Yes? And the great difference between Abraham and Job is Job doesn't actually have to himself give up. Right. That's what the Genesis 22, one of the most powerful stories in the Bible is that Job himself has to give up the problem. Abraham himself. Sorry. Yeah, Abraham himself. Yes, yes. But, but I would say even, though, even Job, though, has to justify God's taking it from him. So even though Job isn't taking the action of offering his own children on an altar per se, he ends up in one sense in the same place at the end of it and has to grapple with, does God have the right to do this? Is this can this be part of God's plan? And if so, uh, what's going on? Yes? That's exactly it. That's what we're going to try to do. 
That, that, that's the question. That is the question. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. God will provide. Right. Right. So, so Abraham's like his like as as rich. Yeah. What did Isaac say? Yeah, I'd love to know. Yeah. 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 Well, well, a lot of the if you look up art, I mean, there's a lot of um, medieval and um, Renaissance art of of this scene. And, and, and all this, the depictions, um, Isaac's kind of, he doesn't have a peaceful expression on his face. There's a couple of pictures where Isaac's got his mouth open and he's kind of like he's screaming. So I, I mean, in, in many, um, many people's imagination, you know, this is not a, this is a pretty, again, we don't know. We obviously don't know. I, Isaac here, um, you know, it's, 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 it's real. I think the point is it's, 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 it's real. It's very real and raw. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Hey, and that's that's the beauty of these stories is you can think about them for in this case four thousand or three thousand years, and um, and we still have these questions. So what I want to moving on though. So we he gets there, and God. Um, what God's calling him to do is enter into a kind of death. You know, the, the death of the, the promise that God's given to him, the death of his offspring. And again, for a man who has no heir, if his son dies, that's, that's the end of his line. Um, you know, Abraham's talked before this point about, well, I can continue my line through uh, this Damascus guy, Eliezer of Damascus, I think, or Ishmael. You know, I can... I can I can get a workaround, but it's not, that's the second best solution. I mean, this is kind of the death of his whole, his whole uh, legacy in one sense. Um, and it's, but God's, again, to then step back to the omniscient perspective of God and outside of Abraham's experience, and we look at it objectively, we say God led Abraham to death, to an, to an experience of death. And, um, and out of that death, uh, that experience of death, rather, God provided a substitute, and then to fast forward here, confirmed the blessing. Confirmed the blessing, um, and that this blessing was confirmed, and an exclamation point was was added to it, if you will, um, because of Abraham's faith. Um, now, real quickly, Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. But then we read, in one sense, that all the blessings of God came to Abraham at the end of verse 18, because you have obeyed my voice. So did Abraham receive these things by faith, or did he receive these things because of his obedience? Yes. Yes. Very good. Yes. How? How do we reconcile those two? 
not the story of Jonah, where Jonah reconciles himself to the text. It is a different story. It's a more, more, more wondrous story. It's at the foundational base of, of the Bible in that, um, that, in that we trust God's ability Yeah, and this is, um, it happened. It happened. I think that's a good way to put it. It's like faith happened. Like Abraham had faith, and then his faith happened in, one, in a sense. And this is, I think, what the book of James gets at. You know, Show me your faith um, apart from works, I'll show you my faith by my works. That, that the Bible doesn't understand a faith that believes apart from a faith that acts. A faith that believes will always act. It's not that the act saves you, per se. It's that if you have faith, when it is tested, it will act. And that's, that's how James starts. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith. And so, that's, that's a big theme. So, yes, these two things are, are two sides of the same coin of faith. Um, much more to say on that. We'll talk about that more next week in terms of, uh, next week we're going to talk mostly about the New Testament. But Okay, so bottom line, to try to move us then to uh, 1 Chronicles 21, um, God leads Abraham in an experience of faith, and that experience leads him to death, and life comes out of death. And the reaffirmation of the promises of dominion renewed comes through the path of death. It comes through the path of resurrection life. In one sense, Isaac will never come to Abraham and be the source of the seed just by natural birth. Right? There's, there's a spiritual, supernatural birth to Isaac here through which the promises are then going to come. And, and this, this, is a, this is, a again, it's very embryonic here at this point. But this theme... I mean, at this point, this is, the, this is the springboard to so many themes in the Bible. You have provision of sacrifice in place of the firstborn, i.e. Passover, prefigured here. You have this idea of life coming out of death. That's the theme here. You have complete submission to God as his servant, typified here, right? And then you have this, this theme throughout the rest of the Bible of God's servant. And all the great men in the Bible are put forward to us as the servant of God. Uh, you see that, that typified here, and then you see it also, this servant of Isaiah 53, right? These servant songs in Isaiah are building upon this theme, and they, they, this, this theme of servant carries its way through the Bible. You also see, you know, <coughs> God promises he's going to make a name for Abraham and his seed. And God leads Abraham to a high place in a mountain, well, that's a completely different way of making a name for yourself than the Tower of Babel, right? So you have here almost a theme of, of anti-Babylon here. And we know Mount Moriah, as we're going to read here, is, is Jerusalem. And so you see the beginnings of how is Zion, 
the mountain of God set up against the city of man in Babylon. Well, it looks completely different. Whatever God's doing in Zion is, is not how the earth wants to make a name for itself. It doesn't involve this death through life or life through death motif. Like something's go- So again, all these themes here. Uh, but one theme I want to drive us towards in 1 Chronicles 21 is this theme of place. The place of Abraham's sacrifice is very important. Mount Moriah. And if you go to... Um, the only other time it's mentioned in the Bible is in 2 Chronicles uh, 3.1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. Okay, so what's going on with this verse? So, Chronicles was written as the last, well, it's, it's arranged as the last book in the Jewish uh, Tanakh, the Jewish uh, Bible. And the, the author or authors of Chronicles, it was written in, uh, uh, after the return of the exile, and they're looking back on all of Israel's history. They're trying to make sense of it. What's God doing? And the theme of Chronicles is God's messianic king builds the temple. That's, that's, that's Chronicles. That, that, and so the rest, the whole book is this, this, this give and take between God's king, you know, prototyped in David, and the temple or the priests. And the, the faithfulness of the kings throughout the book is measured by the extent to which they lead people in true worship and build the temple. And, and Chronicles ends with uh, the people of God leaving the place of exile in Babylon uh, at the decree of Cyrus, and they're called to go up and rebuild, right? And that's just where the, the Jewish Bible leaves off. It leaves off the place where Psalm 15 leaves off. Who can ascend to the to mountain of God? And who's going to lead us into true worship? Who's going to build the temple? That's the question that... Uh, the Jewish uh, people after exile grappled with. And, that, and that's the story that Jesus then steps into. So before we get to Jesus, though, why did David want to build the temple on Mount Moriah? You know, and that's what First Chronicles 21 is going to tell us. And we got 10 minutes, so I'm going to read it. I'm going to give you the cliff notes. I'll draw these connections here. Hopefully you'll keep discussing this amongst yourselves. And, um, but there's just some, I think this is, this is, this is great. Okay. First Chronicles 21. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So this is, this is the story where I'm sure you've heard it in different forms. Uh, David numbers the people. God curses the people with plague because he numbered them. And numbering the people in one sense is fake dominion. I'll just give you a, a clue here. Um, David wants to glory in his earthly strength. Right? He's, not, he's not being a king of faith here. He's being like a normal king and numbering the people. And God punishes him for it. And then God sends this angel of death who's, who's striking down people with plague throughout the city of Jerusalem. And David um, uh, stands in the gap and provides a solution. And we'll see what happens. So, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of numbering of the people to David. And all, sorry, I'm skipping around here. I'm reading the one on uh, uh, your handout. So I'm, I'm leaving out some verses just to streamline the story. 
Verse 5, And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah 470,000 who drew the sword. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And God, David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes with the sword uh, of your enemies, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for, in his, mercy is, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God said to the angel, God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and heaven. And in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? Is it I who have sinned and done great evil? But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O my Lord, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David, and David shall go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. And then David buys the property on which this threshing floor exists, and he buys an ox for the sacrifice because he doesn't want to just take it for free. He wants, David wants it to cost him something. Verse 25, so David paid Ornon 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar, of the, altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of the burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. Okay, so I think these two passages are connected. I've, I've highlighted the, the phrases uh, that suggest this connection. Um, you have Abraham's knife with the sword of the Lord. You have uh, Abraham waiting three days and offering the sacrifice. You have three days of pestilence. You have um, these motifs of Abraham lifting up his eyes and seeing the place of judgment, seeing the place of doom uh, where his son's going to be sacrificed. And you see David lifting up his eyes and seeing the angel of the Lord. And then you also have altars being built in both contexts. And then you also have um, the Lord's response to the judgment or to the command to, uh, for there to be destruction, which is the Lord saw. And the ESV translates saw, the ra'ah uh, in Hebrew, uh, as the Lord will provide. And, and the idea here is, is uh, the Lord kind of will see to it. He'll see that it's done. That's the idea of provision here. But it's the you have this, this literary motif of, of saw. And for more on that, um, I, I preached a sermon on, on uh, 2 Kings chapter 4 where I, I talked about that idea of the Lord's saw and how that kind of connects 
some of these biblical themes. Anyway, there's more of that there. And bottom line here, what you have is, um, in 1 Chronicles 21, you have the whole Bible in a, uh, a compact form. How does David's sin come about? And how is that similar to what happened in the Garden of Eden? Satan deceived the woman, deceived man, and man plunged into sin. Satan comes and incites David and plunges him into sin. And you have a curse coming upon Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the object of judgment here. That Jerusalem is going to get the sharp end of the sword. And so Jerusalem here, the people of God, in one sense stand in the uh, analogous place to Isaac. And, um, and how is Jerusalem spared in the way that Isaac was spared. Well, God saw with Isaac and provided a substitute lamb. God saw and provided a substitute altar uh, through David's burnt offering. And, and what happens as a result of David's sacrifice on the altar at this particular site, the same site where Isaac was sacrificed, the angel of the Lord puts his sword back. Right? Abraham puts his knife back. What's special about this site? Where else in the Bible is there an angel with a sword? What place outside of Eden? Where is the place where the angel puts back the sword? It's at the place of sacrifice. The place of the substitute, right? And so what's David's response after this? First Chronicles 1, 21 through 28. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offerings were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Now, there's a whole lot there, but I think the gist of it is David recognizes there's something special going on at this site that's not going on at the, just the tabernacle. There's a movement that needs to happen in biblical history where David sees that the way back to Eden is open somehow in this particular place. And so what does he say? Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Boom. Just connect in your mind. Again, Eden, temple. Temple is the new Eden. David sees this spot, and he connects what's going on here with the with the offering of Isaac, he connects it here with this angel standing in Genesis 3 with the sword at the gate of Eden. And he's like, God is providing the way back to him in this spot through sacrifice. And so he commands the people to build the temple. And God says, well, you've got to stop. You're not, it's not going to be you who builds the temple. It's not going to be you. It's going to be your greater son. right?" And so David then build, begins the project of collecting all the materials to build the temple of God on this spot. So again, let's just connect everything we've talked about in this class so far. God had a vision for man and his vocation. It was to happen in Eden and from that place to go into the whole earth. Man blew it, got kicked out. 
but he promises salvation through a seed. Through the story of Abraham, we see that God's plan for this seed is going to be life out of death. It's going to be joy out of sorrow. It's going to be blessing out of curse. Right? And this motif gets replayed, and I mean, gets replayed a lot of times throughout the Bible. Uh, life of Job, uh, Hannah and Samuel. I mean, all this, you know, life out of death. Well, it gets replayed in 1 Chronicles 21, and the result is the place where this fundamental story gets replayed in a more extreme sense is the place where the angel puts back his sword. And in one sense, this is the place where man can begin to experience true dominion once more. And we lay hold of that by faith. And then we build that place by faith. Right? And so, this is the story that, um, again, the rest of Chronicles spells out. Is who's going to build this place? Well, that temple that David built got destroyed. Right? That also was a sign of things to come. And that's where the writer of Chronicles leaves off, which is there's a place yet to be rebuilt. That's going to be the place where the angel of death puts away his sword and where man can once again take dominion, where God's true king can reign. And that is the story. Again, how are we going to exercise dominion? How are we going to reverse the curse? How are we going to fulfill our true vocation as God's kings and priests? Come back next time. But that's, but that's where the New Testament picks up, that answering those questions, okay? So, yes. What's that? No, it's to help Diana for the question. Oh. And it seems like she has to take, turn it around and say, this lamb represents Christ. Yes. God provided an offering. God was using Abraham to show him that he showed him Christ, taking his only son, which God gave his only son for our sin. Our sin, we're the bad guys. Right. Right. It's our sin that put Christ on the cross, and our sin that caused his father to have to put his father in the son. It's our sin. Right. And that's like if your friend, if your friend doesn't get the story of Abraham. Your friend doesn't get Jesus. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Like that's, that's the apostles' message. The apostles' message was to connect these dots, and that's what the New Testament is all about. It's connecting all these dots, leading us to Christ. Christ is the plan for the fullness of time. Christ is the one who is the true king, who is the true priest, the true king, who leads us. And we, the church, his body, His new temple is the place where the angel of death puts back the sword and where we experience resurrection life. So, we're going to talk about that all next week. Uh, Let's pray. Our Father, what a Savior. We praise you for the Lord Jesus, that he stood in our place, that he is the one who is worthy to ascend to your holy hill, Uh, And that he ascended to that hill wearing not a crown of gold, not wearing robes of silk, not carrying uh, 
a steel sword, but he went carrying a crown of thorns and carrying a cross. And, and his glory was to enter fully into the curse, to enter into death for us, that we, he might come back from the dead and that we, following him, would also experience life through his death. I pray that we would uh, understand more of what this means. Help us to marinate in this story, uh, for this to be our story, uh, that we also would take up our cross and follow you, that as we experience death in our life, it would not just be futility and, and uh, full of cynicism and, and doubt and fear, but that we would uh, find true life as we follow you in your steps. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.